So, how do we, the way we get a isoelectric point for a polypeptide is similar or identical in concept to how we got an isoelectric point for a, uh, an amino acid with an R group, but it's just a little bit more complicated. There's a few more ionizable groups that you need to keep track of. So I'm gonna write down on the board kind of all the ionizable groups that I think I need to worry about. All right, so there's the NH3 plus of the alanine. They're all up in pink on the board, right? And then there's the carboxylic acid group of the glutamine. And there is the uh, amino group of the lysine on the side chain. And there is the carboxylic acid group of that lysine. Right? And they all have their own PKAs, so I'm going to throw this up now. So we covered this table, and if you were to do an exercise like this, you'd be given these numbers. So I'm looking for the uh, PK2 of alanine, which is 9.69. And I'm looking for the R group of glutamic acid, which is 4.25. And I'm looking for the R group of lysine, which is 8.95. And I'm looking for the PK1 group, the COOH of uh, lysine also, which is uh, 2.18. I think I got all those right, but if I didn't, then we'll just work with these ones, all right? And so basically we're going to do a titration. We're going to do the same thing we did before. We're just going to start a very basic pH, and we're going to put protons on, any, on everything that can have a proton, right? So at pH 1, what's this going to look like? pH 1. Let's start a very basic pH. Everything that can have a proton is going to be protonated, right? So this char the charge of this is going to be plus 1, right? This is going to be protonated. Everything's going to be protonated. This is going to be protonated, so it now has a charge of zero, right? This carboxylic acid groups either have a negative or zero. So this is going to be COOH, right, at very, very low pH. So this is going to be zero. This is going to be plus one, and this is going to be zero. So my net is plus two. Okay? Now I'm going to start bringing up the pH. I'm going to bring up the pH to three. I'm going to pass the first. I look at my list of all my pKa's. What's the first one I'm going to hit as I start doing the titration? It's this one, right? 2.18. So I make pH 3 now. And what's my, what's it going to look like? Well, this isn't going to change because I haven't passed its pKa yet. Ditto for this one. Ditto for this one. This one's going to become COO minus because as I passed 2.18, the protons started coming off. So this is going to be minus 1 now, right? And my net charge is going to be plus 1. And then I just go through the rest of them. Um, let's bring it up to pH 5. At pH 5, I'm going to pass this one, right? This one doesn't change. This one's now minus 1. This one doesn't change. And this one's still minus 1, and my net charge is 0. And then I'm going to go up to pH 9.2. I'm going to pass this one, but not this one. Right? This one hasn't changed yet. This one has not yet. This is still minus 1. This is now zero. The proton comes off of the amino group, and it's just NH2, which has no charge. So this is now zero. And this is still minus one, and my 
net charge is minus 1. And then if I get up to pH 11, I guess, so let's say, this is 0, this is minus 1, this is 0, this is minus 1, and I got minus 2. Okay, now we talked about assigning the species that has no net charge, right? It's this one. Right? That's the species with no net charge. So we have to identify the pKa's that changed to give us that one. Which one changed? Well, to get from plus 1 to 0, it was this one that changed. Right? And to go from 0 to minus 1, it was this one that changed. Right? Those are the key pKa's that changed. So these are the two pKa's I care about. So the isoelectric point would be 4.25 plus 8.95 over 2. And you can do that on your calculator. But that's how you do it. Does that make sense? Yeah? So we talked about you have to identify the pKs that flank that flank the, net, the, the no net charge one. So you have to identify the ones that, which ones changed to go to the zero state, right? This one didn't change. This one didn't change. This one didn't change going from plus one to zero. This is one. So this pKa, it was when you passed 4.25 that you went from the plus one state of the protein, the, tri, the tetrapeptide, to the zero state of the, of the the zero charge state. And the other one that changed to make it go from zero to minus one was this one. That's the other one that changed. So you, you just pay attention to the ones that flank the zero state. If I was caring about this one, uh, this charge state, well then I would have circled this one, that changed, right? And this one. So I use the pK1 for the carboxylic acid chain of lysine. Remember, the, carboxylic the, the C-terminal carboxylic acid group is by definition always pK1. So the carboxylic acid group at the end of the tetrapeptide is the lysine one. pK2 is always the amino group at the end terminus of the protein. So I had to use the NH3 pK2 number for alanine. These are PKRs. This is, the carb this is the charged group on glutamic acid, and this is the charged group on lysine. So I've got a PKR of glutamic acid, a PKR of lysine, a PK2 of alanine, and a PK1 of lysine. More than two or less than two for, for what? Shouldn't be. Can they, so the question is, can there be more than one? I guess it can get very complicated. I mean, we, there are computers that will do this for your protein when it's 100 amino acids long. And that protein will probably have more than one lysine in it, or more than one. So it can get a little bit complex. 
but for the purpose of the course, we're just trying to get the concept across to you, all right? Um, there's only going to ever be one PK1, and there's only ever going to be, sorry, PK1, and there's only going to be ever one PK2, because there's only one N-terminus of a protein and one C-terminus of a protein. Then you're just worried about the PKRs. Last question, yep. You have to do the PKRs for any amino acid in the protein that has a charged group. So these are these ones, right? See these ones that have a PKR? If you used histidine, you'd have to put that PKR in, lysine, et cetera, et cetera. Typically, we only use the ones that, char that are charged at neutral pH. No, you have, a, you have to count for them all. If there's, a PK, if there's an amino acid with a charged group, you have to include it. There's always going to be a PK2 and a PK1 because all proteins have an N-terminus and a C-terminus. And there's always going to be, even if, the, even if it was just one amino acid, there's a PK2 for the NH3 and there's a PK1 for the COO minus. Right? That's at the ends. So you have to have the ones at the ends and all the ones in the middle that have PKRs. Okay, so we'll go into the lecture now. Did you miss me? I missed you all. I did. Okay, so you guys covered a little bit about protein structure in the last couple lectures. We talked about secondary structure and tertiary structure. Um, Finishing up tertiary structure. So basically, the primary structure of a protein is just its sequence. Computers are really good at that. They like text, like Microsoft Word, just M, A, K, W. Uh, secondary structure is local structure. That is um, stretches of amino acids that are contiguous, that are kind of all together, that form things like alpha helices or beta sheets. and then and Computers now have gotten pretty good at predicting that too. And then you get into tertiary structure. Tertiary structure is the three-dimensional shape. So you're going to have a local alpha helix that's making a hydrogen bond to some alpha helix that's 100 amino acids away. That's very hard to predict, right? That's going to be, it's quite complex. The best way of predicting it is if you have a known structure for a known protein and a computer can say, well, I don't know what your protein looks like, but it looks a lot like this other protein, just from sequence. It looks a lot like this other protein that I already know the structure for. So I'm going to say it probably looks a bit like that. And that's kind of an educated guess, right? But what I'm saying is basically this three-dimensional fold of a protein is kind of at the heart of biochemistry. It's very hard to predict. And that's why so many people, we've got at least three or four people just here at York, they dedicate their lives trying to figure out the structures of the three-dimensional shape of proteins. It's important to understand the concept of a protein domain. We first define that from a structural context. It's a domain that's a stable unit of protein structure that'll fold autonomously. Since that, the definition of a domain has changed a little bit, uh, or at least it's evolved a little bit. It can do with uh, specifics of folding. There's an evolutionary component to it. Uh, but the best way to explain a protein domain is if I've got a protein that, let's say it's got an N-terminus and then a C-terminus, and let's say there's 300 amino acids in here, okay? 
this protein is going to take on a fold, right? But it may not all be all 300 amino acids in one, in one globular bit. It may look like, after it folds, it may look something like like that. That means you've got one, and this is what we call domains. This is a domain, and that's separated from another domain by a linker, and that's separated by another, from another domain by a linker. And typically what happens is each of these domains will have one of the functions that the protein has. The protein, in a very simple organism like a bacteria, you see a lot of proteins that only have one domain because bacteria are relatively simple. But as you get up into higher systems like humans or whatever, you, your protein may have to integrate a lot of different functions, and so you end up having a protein with multiple domains. You might have a protein that not only binds to, I don't know, DNA, this one binds to DNA, but this one also binds to some signaling molecule, like, I don't know, it gets phosphorylated by some kinase. This is for signaling, et cetera, et cetera. Each domain of the protein may do different things, and then together, all those things are very, can be very now very complex. It's like uh, you know, the first phone could only do one thing, but now our phones do a lot of things, and they all work together to do, make your life easier, presumably. But uh, the point is that each of these are structurally autonomous. If I just clone this bit and purify it and, and, and express it, this, in theory, should fold nicely, independently of not having these guys, because it's a domain. It's a nice, autonomous unit of protein structure. It doesn't need the other ones to fold nicely. If I were to clone you know, halfway through this, this domain, if I was to separate it into two halves and ask it to fold the right way, it probably wouldn't, because this thing needs all of the domain to fold the way it's supposed to. When you separate them by linkers, then that'll, that'll fold better. Yeah? After it's folded, sorry? Yeah, so typically when you have a protein domain and a protein, it's going to have evolved to have a little bit of space at the beginning, spaces between the domains. That may have to do, that space may be very important. They have to be kind of floppy with respect to one another, and this one may have to bend back and touch this one. You don't know. You're going to have to shout. We're going to have to do it after class, or you have to sit at the front. Sorry, I can't hear you. Okay. Last question. We're not going to get through the lecture. Yep. So yeah, if you break it down, then you're, you're, you're playing with fire a little bit. If you just break this down and say that you, and then you study this, you just take this one piece, you study this, and now you say you know what the protein does. You'll probably know what that domain does. But in the cellular context, obviously, it's evolved to have multiple components that work together. And so you, that doesn't mean that we don't learn a lot when we just work with an individual domain. But you need, to, you need to take your caveats into consideration. Often, this is very, very difficult to work with, the whole thing. OK. So the last bit of structure that we haven't covered yet is quaternary structure. This is basically um, this is relatively straightforward. 
It's just the idea that often a protein doesn't work functionally as one protein chain, right? So this may be one independent protein, but in the body, it inter interacts with another protein, and they form what we would call a dimer, right? Two that are together. It can be, the same, it can be another one of the same one. We'd call that a homodimer. It can be another one of a different protein. That would be a heterodimer. Or, for example, hemoglobin is made up of four subunits, right? So this is mature hemoglobin. It's got two alpha subunits and two beta subunits. So that's two of one protein and two of another protein. And quaternary structure is only a description of how you've got, uh, in the functional form of the protein, more than one chain. That would mean that a protein that only has one chain in it has no quaternary structure, right? If the protein functions as a monomer, and you say, what's the quaternary structure of it? Well, there kind of really isn't any. It's just one, right? But if you want to function as, so hemoglobin, that's a two alphas and two betas. That's a heterotetramer, right? Fatty acid synthase, which we work on a bit in my lab, in yeast, has six alpha subunits and six beta subunits. That's a heterododecamer, right? You don't need to, I mean, what's important is that you understand the concept of that when things function in cells, they don't often, or they don't always function as one polypeptide chain. Often there's a lot of complexity there. So we're going to talk a little bit about how we study proteins in the lab now, okay? This main theme of this lecture is protein purification. So if you want to do studies, we talked a little bit, little bit about this in lecture one. If you want to do studies on your protein of interest, it's challenging if that protein is, if your protein of interest is found in the cell lysate with tens of thousands of other proteins in hundreds of thousands or millions of copies. Okay? So you need to purify it. You need to get it away from all the other things that you're not interested in so you can work with that pure thing. We don't really have the ability to we, we have it at, to some extent. We, we can, if you want to work with a protein of interest and you want to synthesize that protein in the lab synthetically, we can do that for short proteins, something on the order of maybe 10 to 30 amino acids. That's doable, maybe even up to 100. But if you're working with a big protein, we just don't have the capability of doing that. It's too complex, and the chemistry is too complicated. So what we do is we often ask our living system to make our protein for us, and then we purify it from that system. And so there's a lot of effort that's been gone into right from the beginnings of biochemistry, or at least the beginnings of modern biochemistry in the 40s and 50s, to figure out how can we separate our protein of interest from another one. So we typically separate proteins based on their size, their charge, or their interactions with proteins or other ligands. Um, we separate based on size using several methods, centrifugation, electrophoresis, and size exclusion chromatography, which is also called gel filtration chromatography. And we're going to talk about those now. Okay? Sedimentation, it's got the advantage that you can separate large particles of unknown composition, and then you can make a guess at the molecular weight. Sedimentation, and, and the, the key for sedimentation is big. Okay? It's got to be so massive. If you're separating something that's relatively small, on the order of, so we, we use, um, in, in molecular biology and biochemistry, the unit of size for your protein or your nucleic acid is Daltons. 
one Dalton is the same as one molecular weight, okay? Uh, a typical small protein will have a weight of 10,000 Daltons, 10,000 DAs, which we would abbreviate to 10 kilodaltons, okay? If you were to try to sediment something that's dissolved, that's 10 kilodaltons big, put it in a centrifuge and spin it to the point where it actually will pellet, you're going to be spinning for weeks. It's very difficult. But something that's on the order of one or two megadaltons, well, that's doable. You can separate that by centrifugation. That's something on, like the size of a ribosome. Okay? That can be pelleted. That can be spun in a tube. And so if you're trying to separate something very big from everything else, that's a really convenient way of doing it. At least it's a good first step. So if you're making ribosomes, the first thing you do after you break open the cells is put them in the centrifuge and let them go overnight. And you will get the ribosomes. You'll get the other things that are massive. But all those other little things that you're not interested in, you can just throw them out. They'll be stuck up in the supername. This is basically the principles of centrifugation. I'm not going to get into too much detail on this. I could, but I'm not going to. Uh, basically, the principle of centrifugation is when you put something in a centrifugal field, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to basically uh, be subjected to a force that's going to make it want to go to the bottom of the tube, basically outside, away from the axis. And the force it senses is going to be mass dependent, right? Basically, the bigger it is, the more it's going to want to go that way. That's counteracted by diffusion. Diffusion, things don't like to be concentrated. They want to dissolve, diffuse from one another. And so, but that's going to be mass independent. Okay, so you're going to have mass independent diffusion, but mass dependent certification. And basically what that means is that when you put something in a, in a centrifugal field, the massive stuff will concentrate near the bottom. The diffusion and the lack of force on the light stuff will keep the light stuff up at the top and you can separate things that way. It's very crude, though. You're really going to get kind of a large kind of mixed bag of stuff at the bottom of the tube that's big, but it's a nice first step. You're going to see that when we purify things in the lab, it's often requiring more than one step, right? So this would be a good first step for something that's very big. By far, the thing that we do the most in the lab to separate things is electrophoresis. It's cheap. It's easy. Even undergrads can do it. Uh, it's got high res that was a joke. I don't mean that. <laughs> Undergrads can be very, very great, uh, but it's just a little joke. Sorry. Uh, it's got very high resolution. It's highly reproducible, and you can use it for both preparative and, and uh, analysis. Preparative work as well as for analytical work. So basically, here we have basically a cell lysate. If you take a cell lysate and you run it out on a gel, it looks something like this. This is kind of a sum total of all the proteins that are in a cell separated by their size. In this uh, second lane, we've induced to make our protein of interest. So what they've done is that they've taken a protein of interest, they've cloned it, and we'll talk about this in the second portion of the course, how you do this. They've cloned it so that it's expressed in that cell line or E. coli uh, col uh, culture such that when it's induced, when you activate the expression of it, you get a lot of it. And then you break the cells open. We talked about this. This is, you've opened the cells, you've broken them open, you've spun out the membranes. That's that low speed spin. So you spun out, remember in lecture one, the intact cells and the membranes, and then you run that out on a gel. So this is basically, again, the whole contents of the cell that are soluble. And then you start purifying. You do an ammonium sulfate precipitation, you run these over columns. And at the end, the hope is that you got this purified protein.
Okay? But this is also, this is electrophoresis, right? This is also a form of separation. We're separating this band that we care about from all these other bands that we don't care about. Okay? And that can be to analyze it, to say, yeah, look, look how much we have. There's a lot, and it's really pure. Or we could even, in theory, cut that band out and get the protein out of it again and work from it. Okay? How does electrophoresis work? Well, basically it relies on the fact that when you have something that's charged and you put it in an electric field, it's going to want to move. Okay? So uh, DNA is charged, right? Deoxyribonucleic acid, it's got lots of negative charge on it. Uh, you've got um, proteins that have varying degrees of charge on them based on the composition of their amino acids. When you put those particles into an electric field, they're going to want to move to the opposite pole, right? If something's negatively charged, it's going to want to move to the positive pole, right? And vice versa. How does it move? Well, it's the way it will move is proportional to its charge, Z, and the rate at which it moves is going to be inversely proportional to the drag, basically the friction of the particle with the solvent. That's why we separate typically DNA and proteins in gels, right? The gel is a nice sieve. If you try to separate things in water, it's not going to work very well because things just shoot through water, right? There's basically no, nothing impeding something from going through water. But if we create a gel, it's like jello. It's kind of this viscous, goopy medium that things have a little bit more trouble getting through. Well, then you're going to be much better at like, getting large things apart from small things. Uh, for electrophoresis, uh, electrophoresis of proteins, we typically use, we typically separate these on the basis of size. Um, this is normally quite difficult because, as we've been talking about, and we've been kind of going through these exercises on the board, a typical protein will have a very different charge from a different protein, right? So let's say instead of this exercise I did for a uh, tri tetrapeptide for a, a, a peptide of four amino acids. Let's say I did this exercise for something that's 100 amino acids. I wouldn't want to do that. I'd give it to a computer, but the computer would then tell me, okay, your isoelectric point is, I don't know, 7.5 for that protein. And then protein B, the isoelectric point would be uh, 5.8. You know, they'd have different iso, bless you, they'd have different isoelectric points, right? So if I'm trying to separate them on, on, based on their size, well, that's going to be a problem because one of them is going to be feeling the, ionic, the, the, the electric field more than the other, right? One of them has a different charge than the other one. That's not a problem with DNA and RNA. DNA and RNA are great. They're, they have got a phosphodiester backbone with a lot of negative charge. And that charge on the phosphodiester backbone dominates the charge of the molecule. So basically, a uh, DNA or RNA molecule of 10 nucleotides has the same charge to mass ratio as a DNA molecule or RNA molecule of 100 nucleotides. It's just bigger. And then you can separate them very nicely based on charge because they come with their own big, uniform negative charge. But it's not the same thing with proteins, right? Some proteins can be positively charged. Some are negative. So we have to game it a bit. We have to cheat. What we do is we add SDS, sodium dodecyl sulfate. Another word for this is soap. If you look on your bottle of shampoo, this is almost certainly the first ingredient. Uh, it's also called sodium laureth sulfate because laureth sounds more like a rainbow than dodecyl. Um, so that's just marketing. But basically what you're doing is you take soap, which has the uh, quality of being very charged, right? And it 
it's a detergent, and it, will, it has the property of binding protein very well. And what happens is you're going to take your protein of interest and incubate it with SDS, and the SDS is going to cover the whole protein. So this is my protein. It used to be folded up nicely. I add a lot of SDS to it, and the protein's going to unwind, and it's going to be covered uniformly in negative charge. Okay? And the amount of negative charge, it's going to become basically like a DNA or an RNA. The charge to mass ratio is going to be equal for a small protein or a big protein. It's just that they're going to have the same charge, over, charge to mass ratio over the course of it, and now you can separate it just based on its size. The problem with doing it this way, it's very robust and very, and this, that, this is an SDS page gel that I just showed you here, right? So you separate very nicely on the basis of size, the big stuff's at the top and the small stuff's at the bottom. The problem is that uh, when you cover your protein in negative charge like this, it denatures the protein, it unfolds it. So if your protein was active and functional here, when you, when you prepare it for SDS page, it's not active anymore, you killed it. Whatever enzymatic activity it had before, it's gone because you've unfolded it, and it was basically this linear piece of spaghetti, okay? And so we, call the, we also call uh, SDS electrophoresis uh, denaturing electrophoresis. The protein has become denatured. So that's, uh, S, so this is SDS polyacrylamide gel electrophoresis, SDS page, okay? This is what it looks like. We do this in the lab every day. You've got your gel, you load your sample in the well, you apply an electric field, they all move towards the anode, the larger proteins have more negative charge, but the gel sieves the larger proteins to a greater extent than the smaller proteins. So what ends up happening is the smaller proteins run faster and the larger proteins run smaller. Uh, and I mentioned already we call this denaturing, denaturing page. Okay? Now you may have a protein that is multi-subunit. That's going to really mess with how it runs on this gel if you're trying to identify the size of the subunits. Uh, when you add the SDS, those subunits will generally come apart. On occasion, the subunits are held together by what are called disulfide bonds, okay? We talked about disulfide bonds, or you should have talked about disulfide bonds last class and the class before. So when we do SDS page, often we want to reduce those disulfide bonds so we can separate subunits from one another or even get rid of intramolecular disulfide bonds, which could also complicate things. We typically add beta-mercaptethanol. Beta-mercaptethanol, you, you know it already. It's what you smell when you uh, run the gas in your house and don't light it. It's that kind of a rotten egg smell. Uh, but it's a very strong reducing agent. So what it does is that it binds to the disulfide bonds of your protein, breaks them, and now you're going to have everything running out based only on its size without that complicating thing of, of things running as dimers or trimers or whatever. How do you estimate the size of something by STS page? Uh, it's the same way you do it for DNA, I think, in probably high school but these days, or maybe in first years. Uh, you run a standard or a ladder in an adjacent lane, and that has the molecular, uh, the, it has proteins of known molecular weight. So for example, you'd buy this from Invitrogen or any of a number of companies. This one has myosin, all the way down to lysozyme. These are all, this is all in, in Dalton's, so this one's 200 kilodaltons, this one's 14 kilodaltons. So you run that in lane one. You measure the distance from the well that they travel, okay? And you put that uh, on the x-axis. You take the log of the molecular weight, you put that on the y-axis, and you get this curve, okay, this plot. Then you take your protein of unknown size that you've purified, you don't know what it is. You measure its, uh, the distance it travels from the well, 
and you fit it to this curve and you have now an estimate of the molecular weight. Okay? If you know what the protein is, the easy way to identify the molecular weight is to just take the sequence of the protein and put it into a web form and it'll spit out that it's exactly this size. But if you don't know what your protein is, then that's maybe something you can do on the path to figuring out what your protein is. You can now figure out what, how big it is. How are we doing? Questions? It just makes life easier, right? Yeah. I mean, in theory, you could not do the log and you'd get some sort of a curve, but it just makes for a nice, pretty, yeah. Okay, so let's say that I want to separate my protein from other proteins, but uh, I don't get very, I don't, I'm not happy with the resolution. So this is the lysate of, of bacterial cells, and this is what it looks like. This cell has thousands of pro different proteins in it. Do you think you've got thousands of ants here? You do. You just can't separate, you just can't distinguish them all because they've been smushed into something that's only five centimeters long, okay? So you want increased resolution. You want to separate further and try to get uh, individual proteins away from indi other individual proteins. You know, two proteins that have very similar molecular weights are gonna run in the same space on this gel. And if you wanna get them further apart, that's gonna be difficult. So how else can you do that? One thing we do is a technique called isoelectric focusing. I just told you that when you add the SDS to your protein, it becomes effectively uniformly negatively charged. No matter what charge the protein had to start with, that charge is basically gone. But let's say I can take advantage of that difference in charge between proteins to do further separation. Basically what we can do is take our protein sample and we put it into a gel strip, or sometimes people pour a gel into a little capillary tube, a little glass tube. They basically fill it with acrylamide, and across that glass tube, across that gel, they apply a pH gradient, okay? And so then what will happen is, when you apply your sample to it, they're gonna move in the direction that they, so if you've got a very positively charged uh, a protein, uh, here we have this de decreasing pH. If you've got a positively charged protein, it's going to want to go from right to left. And if you've got a negatively charged protein, it's going to want to go from left to right. And basically, they're going to, basic, the proteins will keep moving in the gradient until they get to a place in the gradient where, they're, where they've hit their isoelectric point, right? Their isoelectric point is the place where they have no net charge. So at that point, they're going to stop moving, right? So if I've got this tetrapeptide that's got an isolated point of whatever this is, I don't know, what is it, six, something like that, it's going to move in the gradient until it gets to the place in the gradient where the pH is six. At that point, it has no net charge anymore, so there's nothing positively charged moving it one way or negatively charged moving it the other way anymore, and it's just going to stop. And so what you do is you separate all your proteins in the cell based on their isoelectric points. In this way, here's some examples of some isoelectric points of some different proteins. Lysozyme, very basic. Pepsin, very acidic. Why is that? Why would pepsin have evolved to be, have an isoelectric point that's very acidic? Yeah. Yeah, it's in your stomach, right? So your stomach is very acidic. Pepsin has evolved to be active at acidic pH, and so it's got a lot of amino acids in it that are acidic. So basically it's happy, it's happy at acid pH. And so that, once you've got that gel strip where the proteins have been separated by their isoelectric points, you lay that strip across an SDS page. We already talked about SDS page. 
This is just an SDS page gel. You apply the current, and now it goes into the gel, and now it's denatured and it's separating just based on its size. And now you, at the end of it, you've got something that looks more like this. From left to right, you're going into de decreasing isoelectric point, and from top to bottom, you're going into decreasing molecular weight. And now you have a small chance, at least, to be able to identify your particular protein. You know, if you had just done SDS page, your ability to resolve this dot from this dot would have been very, very difficult because they're basically identical molecular weights, right? They're basically in the same uh, latitude of this, of this gel. But by, imply, by uh, adding an extra dimension to this, now you can separate basically also an isologic point and get them away from one another. Okay, so that's, we'll stop there for now for electrophoresis. I want to go into chromatography. Many different kinds of chromatography. Um, we talked about the uh, deficiencies of electrophoresis, specifically SDS page electrophoresis. The problem with electrophoresis is if you want to purify an active enzyme, you're interested in the enzyme. You want to study that how we call alcohol dehydrogenase metabolizes ethanol. Well, if you're purifying up by SDS page, you've got a problem because after you've run it out on the gel, after you added the SDS, you basically denatured the whole protein into this piece of spaghetti that doesn't work anymore. So you want ways to uh, purify native, what we call native proteins, right? Not denatured proteins, proteins that are still in their native state. Okay, so how do you do that? Well, uh, one way that people often use is called chromatography. So this is basically, chromatography, the word comes from uh, separation of colors, actually. Uh, if you take uh, a dye, like in a marker, and you apply it to paper chromatography, you can separate different colors in that dye away from one another. We typically, in the biochemistry field, apply the term chromatography to separation of molecules over a medium. Uh, in, in, inevitably, it's a usually it's a column. Uh, people do do still paper electrophoresis, but for the purpose of the course, we're going to talk about column chromatography. What's a column? A column is basically this tube that's filled with a matrix, beads usually, beads that have some property. The sample is passed over the beads, and the way that the sample interacts with the beads is going to affect the rate at which the samples go through the column. So everything that you add to the column is going through it from top to bottom, but the stuff you're applying to the column, by virtue of the nature of the column, it's gonna, you're going to have things that interact with the column differently than others. When we're talking about ion exchange chromatography, the, column, the, 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 the matrix of the column, the beads of the column, what's important is that they have a charge on them. We're separating on the basis of charge. Okay? And in this case, we've got beads that are negatively charged. Okay? You can also have beads that are positively charged. Um, depend, which one you pick depends on whether you think your protein is negatively charged or positively charged. You can try to separate it by using negatively charged beads, and if it doesn't work, then you'd probably try to separate it by positively charged beads if you don't know what the protein is. Uh, so basically, in this example, we've got negatively charged beads. Okay? We apply our sample. Our sample will be a lysate from proteins. Okay? Proteins that have a large net negative charge, okay, that's this big dark red dot. Well, you know what happens when negatively charged things interact with negatively charged things? They don't like each other. They repel. And so basically, those negatively charged molecules, that is, proteins with acidic isoelectric points, are going to go basically right through the column. They're going to go through the column basically as quickly as the water, the, sol the solvate that you put on the column 
goes through the column. Basically, the, the front of the, of the solution that goes through the column, the negatively charged things are going to be going along with that because they're not interacting with the beads at all. Okay? And then you get them basically down. And then what you want to do is you want to fractionate. You want to separate that which comes off the column over time into fractions. So fraction one, nothing has come off yet. Fraction two, nothing's come off yet. Fraction three, the things that came off first are, have started to come off. And if your beads are negatively charged, then those things are going to be negatively charged things. Okay? If you've got things with positive charges, they're going to stick to the column. So basically, after we've run a few, after we've run our sample through the column and we've washed it a little bit, put some buffer through it, all the negatively charged things will have run through the column and all the positively charged things will be stuck to the column. Okay? How do we get them off? Well, what we do is that we compete them off with a buffer that has charge in it. Okay? So we apply a solution over the column that has an increasing amount of charge. And when I, mean, when I say charge, I mean salt. Right? You could use sodium chloride. It's got lots of positively charged sodium ions. It's got lots of negatively charged chloride ions. You could put a very low amount of salt on the column first, let's say, 10 millimolar salt, okay? as opposed to a high amount of salt, like one molar salt. Right? You put 10 millimolar salt over the column. Well, now you've got positive and negative charges that are going over the column. The positively charged sodium ions are also interacting with the beads, and they're kind of fighting for the negative charge on the beads with the proteins that are stuck to the beads. The proteins that have a very small net positive charge, they're positively charged, but not really very positively charged. Let's say their isoelectric point is you know, 7.5 or 8. Okay? They're, they're positively charged, but not very positively charged. Well, it's not going to take a lot of salt to push them off. And so what you could then get in the fractions when you're putting that amount of salt on the column, in those fractions where you're starting to apply your salt solution, you're going to start getting the slightly positively charged molecules. But then you're going to ramp up how much salt you're adding. Instead of 10 millimolar salt, you're going to use 50 millimolar, 100 millimolar, 500 millimolar, maybe even a molar salt. At that point, you're blasting the column with charge, and even proteins that have a very large net positive charge are going to be pushed off. And so what you're doing is you're stretching out all the positively charged proteins in the cell away from one another based on their charge. And the important thing is that they're native, right? You haven't denatured them. Okay? So what you're going to have at the end is a run, of call, a run of fractions. We call these fractions. It's not going to be 1 to 6. It's going to be more like 1 to 80. Okay? And all the proteins in the cell are going to be separated across those 80 fractions based on their charge. And hopefully the protein you want is in one of those. You can then take that fraction. It's going to be in that fraction, along with all the other proteins in the cell you don't want that happen to have the same isoelectric point. So you then need to subsequently purify those others away. How would you do that? Well, you've separated them basis, on the basis of charge, but they don't necessarily all have the same size, so then you would use a different type of chromatography that separates based on size. This is called size exclusion chromatography. It's also called gel filtration chromatography. In this method, the beads in the column do not have any charge on them, no charge. But the beads have little pores in them. You can imagine the beads are not like a marble. They're more like, uh, I don't know, like kind of like a ball of twine, I guess. There's spaces in it, right? 
And the spaces, you can buy different, you can buy beads with different sizes of space in them. And what happens is the uh, spaces in the beads provide a path uh, through the bead for things that are small, but not a path for things that are big. Okay, so when you apply the sample to uh, the size exclusion chromatography column, the big things in the column can't go in the beads. The, the, the pore size of the beads is smaller than the size of the protein. And so what happens is the big things go around the beads. They can't go into the beads, they go around the beads. And so their path to the bottom of the column is very quick. What happens though for small things, they go into the beads. Sometimes they come out of the bottom, sometimes they come out on the side, sometimes there's, the path through the bead is very circuitous. It's very kind of jumbled and it's not in any way uh, planned, right? So when things go through the beads, they kind of, their path from the top to the bottom of the column is much longer because they can go in a bead and come out of a bead. And so what you end up doing is, again, you're separating things into fractions, but for size exclusion chromatography, the big things come out first and the small things come out later. Okay? It's a good question. So the question is, why don't we denature the protein when you add the salt? Um, typically, proteins can be pretty happy in, in increasing amounts of salt. You know, they've evolved to be, if it's natively folded, their hydrophobic bits are in the middle and their hydrophilic bits are pointing out. And so those hydrophobic bits are generally pretty happy with charge floating around. The, salt, the body is a salt-containing thing, right? Um, Having said that, it is possible that if you add too much salt, you could actually denature the protein. Yeah. So you have to bear that in mind. You wouldn't actually put one molar salt over the column. That would probably be too much. If you needed one molar salt to get your thing off the column, the better thing to do would be to slightly change the pH of the column such that now the things have a slightly different charge, or you'd use the other column. If you use negatively charged beads, you'd use the positively charged column. This is the type of chromatography that we do most often in the lab. It's called affinity chromatography. In affinity chromatography, our beads are covered with some sort of reagent that will interact with our protein of interest and only our protein of interest. Okay? So uh, basically, instead of beads that are just negatively charged or positively charged or beads that have pores in them, uh, by far the most commonly form, common form of affinity chromatography you, involves the use of nickel ions. So this is a column that's filled with beads that are saturated with nickel. Right? And what you do is you take your protein of interest and you, by genetic engineering, and we'll talk about this in, in, in the second section of the course, using cloning and genetic engineering, you engineer a run of six histidines on your protein of interest. So if this is my protein of interest. This is its native sequence. I clone it. Where's my chalk? I clone it such that I insert into, say, the N-terminus a run of six histidines. If you remember the R group of histidine, it's that ring, that imidazole ring. Imidazole rings like to bind nickel. Okay. And so what happens is you express your cloned protein in, say, coli, 
E. coli makes a lot of it. You break open the E. coli, you run it over the nickel column. This protein binds it, the nickel column really, really well because of this six histidine tag you've engineered into it. That tends to be pretty rare, six histidines in a row. Doesn't happen very often in proteins that are normally in the cell. All the other proteins you don't care about go through the column. And then what you can do, you remember the R group of histidine is called imidazole, an imidazole ring. You can just, after you've washed out all the proteins you don't want through the column, then you apply imidazole to the column. And now the imidazole on the protein is competing with the imidazole that you've added for the nickel. And basically, you swamp the column with the imidazole you add, and the imidazole rings on the protein can't compete. And so they basically let go. And then your protein of interest comes off the column. The rub of this is that you have to know what protein you're working with. You can't, if you're trying to find some mystery protein that has some mystery activity, you can't do this way. You, don't, you can't do it this way. You haven't cloned it. You don't know which protein to add the histidines to. All right? But if you're working in a lab and you know, so in my lab we like to work on these proteins called LA, LA-related proteins. I want to work with LA. That's the protein I want to work with. So I clone it and I put these six histidines on it and I ask E. coli to make buckets of it for me and then I purify it out of E. coli. Right? But if you're chasing some mystery protein in human cells that has some mystery activity and you don't know what protein does it, well then you can't do it this way, right? You don't know which protein to, to tag. Uh, who had a question? That's why I often finish my point, because often I do that. Okay. So yeah, you gotta engineer this into your protein of interest. So this is kind of the idea of what I've been talking about for native purification of enzymes if you want to purify an enzyme that you don't know, this concept of specific activity is very important. And if you look up papers, classic biochemistry papers, where they were figuring out how people metabolize ethanol or fat or who knows what, um, this is a very important concept. The idea of a specific activity is, well, first you have to have an activity. You have to have a thing the enzyme does, okay? So let's say I'm interested in uh, metabolism of ethanol, and I'm trying to chase after the enzyme that we now know is alcohol dehydrogenase. Well, I need an assay. I need a, a test for, I know that something in cells metabolizes ethanol, but I don't know what it is. I'm trying to purify the enzyme that does that, okay? Well, I need a test to sh take ethanol and convert it to acetaldehyde, I believe. And so basically, you want to, you take a cell lysate, okay, and you have your test for converting ethanol, and you add the cell lysate to it, and somewhere in that cell lysate is alcohol dehydrogenase, and so at a certain rate, it converts the ethanol, and I have a, I design a, I assign an activity to that. I say, you know, in my crude cellular extract, I had a total of 10,000 milligrams of protein, and that 10,000 milligrams of protein was able to metabolize 100,000 units of, of ethanol uh, conversion. Okay? So I take my 100,000 units of activity, and I divide it by the total amount of protein, and I get a specific activity, 10 units per mg. All right? So the specific activity of unpurified cell lysate is quite low, all right? 
But then what do I do is I take that cell lysate and I precipitate it with ammonium sulfate. We didn't really go into precipitation, so we'll jump that. I take that cell extract and I put it over ion exchange chromatography. And I test each fraction for the activity. I take fraction one and I do my assay with ethanol. I take fraction two, I do the same assay. And I realize that it's fraction, I don't know, 48, where, hey, there's a lot of activity in that fraction. Okay? How much protein was in that fraction? There was only 400 milligrams of protein in it, but it had 80,000 units of activity. Okay, so the specific activity has gone way up. The amount of activity per gram of protein that I have has gone from 10 to 200. Okay, and then I can go through other forms of purification. The idea is to get a very, very high specific activity. You're going to have maybe not a lot of protein left over. Well, that's not unexpected. If you take all the proteins in the cells and reduce it only to the one you want, well, then there's not going to be much protein left. Right? I've gone from 10,000 milligrams of protein to three. But the activity in those three milligrams is enormous. And my normalized amount of activity, the specific activity, is very high. And at this point, I would probably take what I've purified and run it on a gel, and I would hope I'd see one band. Right? I've purified my one enzyme that I'm interested in chasing after. And then we have methods to identify what that protein is. And now you say you have discovered a new enzyme that does X, right? So this idea of purifying to increase the specific activity of your protein of interest is, is central to kind of biochemistry and, and purification. Is that clear? You can imagine an, an analogy where you've got 10,000 people. You're looking for the dentist in there, you separate the 10,000 people into bins of 100. Nine of those bins have no skill whatsoever in dentistry. One of those bins, there's some, there's a dentist in there somewhere, but you need to separate it further after that. And eventually, you're hoping to get down to one person that has a high activity of cavity filling. Okay. Yoink. Chemical. So a little bit more. Uh, we're going to get into hemoglobin and myoglobin now. Some proteins have chemical groups on them. Oh, do you want to do a... Hmm. You know, I, I planned on doing clickers, but I... I haven't had a chance to do it yet. So I have got some clicker questions. We can, you know what I'm going to do is next class I'm going to throw them up while I'm getting ready, and people can give them a go. Maybe I'll, uh, and, then, and then when the class starts, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll jump in. But I do, I do, if you want to bring your clicker and you want to play along, I want to be able to do that. So I've actually got some stuff, and I was going to look, do it today, but I'm running a bit behind, so I'm going to try to save some for next class. But please bring your clicker if you want to play along. It's not for grade. It's just to participate. And uh, the idea is that you'll see some multiple choice questions that, in theory, might look like something you might see on an exam. But I... Oh, um, I will post some questions of previ on previous exams on the Moodle at some point. So you'll see that also if you're interested in that. Oh, and uh, before the end of class, we still have 20 minutes, but at the end of the class, everyone's leaving and no one can hear me. Yeah, there is office hours today, a half an hour after the end of the class if you want to come by. 
I ran an online office hours yesterday. Um, only one person showed up. But um, I will do that. I try to do that at least once a week. And I try to give at least a day or two's notice on the Moodle. So just keep an eye on the Moodle. I don't ever say, you know, office hours is starting now. I, I usually at least do it a day in advance and, and hopefully more than that. Okay. So some proteins come, on, come with chemical groups that are attached to them. We call these conjugated proteins. Uh, if it's a non-amino acid moiety, we call this often a prosthetic group. The classic example of this that we're going to cover now is this idea of heme. Heme is a prosthetic group that we see in both myoglobin and hemoglobin. And heme is a really cool molecule because it has an iron atom in it, which is not typical. Why is heme important? Well, we need oxygen. We've evolved to need oxygen. The problem is that oxygen diffuses poorly. So basically, our circulatory system is an entire strategy to try to get oxygen to parts of your body that are not right next to your lungs. Right? You breathe in oxygen through your lungs, but it needs to be delivered to your brain or to your feet. So uh, amino acids can't bind oxygen, so we need something to deliver it. Iron binds oxygen very nicely, but free iron is very dangerous. It gets so uh, plus two iron can get can react with oxygen to form plus three iron, and in so doing, make a reactive oxygen species like hydrogen peroxide or singlet oxygen, which are very unhealthy. So we need a way to, we can't just have iron floating around in the bloodstream. That's a problem. It's also poisonous. So we need a way to sequester free iron. So this is the strategy for doing that. This is hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is a protein, basically your red blood cells are just hemoglobin-making machines. They are, they've evolved to do one thing. They just make this, and they're just bags of it. It's great. And so you've got hemoglobin, which is made up of four polypeptides. I think I mentioned that already. Two alpha chains, two beta Goodness gracious. Sorry about that. Two alpha chains, two beta chains. That's what I do when I'm thinking about something else while I'm writing. And so this is the tertiary structure. Well, it's also the quaternary structure, right? There's more than one chain in here. But you get an idea of the three-dimensional fold, right? We talked about tertiary structure. There's, you can see the three-dimensional fold of each subunit in here. And it's that three-dimensional fold that allows it to bind heme, OK? It's very alpha helical rich, right? There's not a lot of beta sheet in here. Lots of alpha helices, but that's just a, the nature of hemoglobin. This is what heme looks like. You do not need to memorize what it looks like, but you should understand that uh, it's basically this ring of carbons and nitrogens that have evolved to basically sequester an iron atom. This is, these four nitrogens are, you can think of them as in a plane, right? There's a planar arrangement. So this, you can think of this whole heme molecule as kind of a flat plane that we're looking down on. There's four coordinated bonds. So iron can, make, can coordinate six bonds. Four of them are made to nitrogens that are in the plane of the heme. So this is another kind of diagram of it. So you've got this iron here. It's got six coordination bonds. Four of them are planar. And these are the nitrogens of the heme molecule. There's two coordination bonds that point, point outside of the plane of the ring. One of those is to a histidine that is in hemoglobin. All right, that's in one of the subunits. So there's a histidine in the protein that makes that fifth coordination bond, holds it in place. The sixth one is reserved for the oxygen. That's the one that's going to bind covalently to the oxygen. Okay? This oxygen site is highly buried. Why is that? 
Well, oxygen likes to bind to iron that is just floating around, or if it attacks it in a particular way, it loves to turn iron plus two into iron plus three, and then just float off. And that's a problem, right? That's what happens when iron rusts, right, basically. So basically what happens is if an, iron, if an oxygen comes along the wrong way and just oxidizes the iron from plus two to plus three, well, that, number one, you've made a reactive oxygen species, like I talked about, so that's unhealthy. And you've killed the hemoglobin. It can't bind oxygen anymore. Plus three iron in hemoglobin is not active. Uh, and so what you want to do is the iron binding site in hemoglobin is very buried. It's very kind of sequestered away from solvent, such that when the oxygen gets in there, it really can only go in kind of one way. It's, very, it's evolved to make sure that that oxygen atom has a very specific path to the iron such that it binds this way instead of just oxidizing the iron and floating off. So we talked about how hemoglobin has two alpha subunits, two beta subunits. Each subunit has a heme molecule in it. Each heme group can bind one oxygen. So there's four oxygens that can bind per big hemoglobin. So we've talked about this heterotetramer that binds four hemes and four O2 molecules. On the other hand, in addition to hemoglobin, your body also has something called myoglobin. Okay? It's made in the muscles. It's only got one polypeptide. It binds one heme and one oxygen. So why is that? Why do we have two different molecules, one that binds four hemes and four oxygen molecules, and that's what's circulating around in your red blood cells, and one in your muscles that only has one heme and one oxygen molecule? Well, the answer comes from the fact that we need molecules that bind oxygen in our bodies that can do two different things. And myoglobin and hemoglobin do those two different things. So here's the partial pressure of oxygen in the lungs. It's on the order of 15 kilopascals. Your partial pressure of oxygen in a resting muscle is 5. Oxygen in a working muscle is 1. It's being, you're using the oxygen in a working muscle, right? So it drops. So for transporting oxygen in the blood, we need a molecule that will pick up oxygen at high partial pressure in the lungs but then it'll let go of it when it gets to the muscle. You don't want your oxygen molecule on your heme to bind. You don't want oxygen to bind to your heme in the blood and then fly past the muscle and not let go of it, right? Uh, but when we want to store oxygen in the muscle, we need something that's got a high affinity for oxygen, right? And so we've got hemoglobin and myoglobin that fulfill these different roles. Hemoglobin picks up hemoglobin picks up oxygen when there's lots of oxygen in the lungs and then lets go of it when it gets to the muscle and the oxygen level is much lower. Whereas myoglobin just likes really binding oxygen. So as soon as oxygen comes by, it grabs it, and that's part of the way, reason why hemoglobin will let go of it. So this is uh, our binding curves for um, hemoglobin. The binding curve curve for myoglobin is, is very straightforward. It looks something just like this, this high affinity state. It just binds uh, oxygen at high levels uh, at all. I mean, it doesn't need a very high partial pressure of oxygen to bind it very tightly. On the other hand, oxygen is a very strange kind of um, curve for binding uh, oxygen, and that's because hemoglobin exists in more than one state, okay? It's got a low affinity state, there's a transition from a low to a high affinity state, and it's got a high affinity state. 
And we call this cooperative binding. Okay? So cooperative binding refers to, and, and seeing this kind of sigmoidal transition between uh, a low affinity state and a high affinity state, instead of just a curve that just goes up and then flattens out, when you see a curve that makes an S like this, that's often indicative of what we call cooperative binding. What happens is, as the first uh, oxygen is bound to hemoglobin, that's a little bit difficult. All right? So it's, there's kind of like a resistance to binding that first oxygen. But once that first oxygen is bound, the next oxygens jump on very quickly. Okay? So there's um, binding of the first oxygen molecule results in easier binding of the subsequent oxygen molecules. Okay? So you can imagine a situation where you've got this hemoglobin that has no oxygen on it. Getting that first oxygen on is a little bit difficult, but once it's on, the hemoglobin changes, and then it grabs another three oxygens very quickly. So how does that work? Well, it's because hemoglobin will undergo a conformational change upon oxygen binding. Okay? This is, we call those two states of hemoglobin, the tense state or the T state, and the R state or the relaxed state. Okay? So this is basically empty hemoglobin. Okay? And this is hemoglobin as it's transitioned into the relaxed state. Okay? So two to more oxygens on it will increase the propensity of forming this form. Okay? So this form has relatively low affinity for uh, oxygen. As the first one binds and subsequent ones binds, you're going to get more and more of this relaxed state. And this one really likes to bind oxygen. Okay? Why is that? What happens? Well, this is kind of what I showed you already. If you look at uh, the heme ring, in uh, hemoglobin that does not have any oxygen bound, the heme ring is not quite planar. It's kind of got this kind of lens, concave shape to it. Okay? Here's that histidine ring that is covalently bound to the iron molecule. And so this is where we're expecting our oxygen to bind, right over here. And what happens is when the oxygen binds, well, that really reinforces the heme wanting to be completely planar. Okay? So you can see that over here, you've basically bound your oxygen, and now instead of this kind of lens shape on the heme ring, you've got this planar state. Right? So what happens when that heme ring straightens out? It pulls on this alpha helix. Basically, you can imagine that for this to straighten out, this iron molecule has to go a little bit this way. When it does that, it pulls on this histidine, and it actually moves this helix. So this is shown here a little bit. In the absence of oxygen, that's in kind of this mauve color, bluey mauve color. It's kind of got this, um, this kind of bent shape here. And then when the oxygen binds, it pulls it into this flat planar form, and that pulls this alpha helix behind it from this mauve shape to this one. So it actually, the, the oxygen binding actually distorts the heme ring, and that distorts the protein. And that actually changes the hemoglobin from one state to the other. That conformational change is translated across to the other subunits, and they adopt the new shape. And that new shape really likes to bind oxygen. This is kind of a theoretical idea for how positive cooperativity can work. Uh, again, this is kind of theoretical. You have basically multiple binding sites. Uh, the degree to which we can go into this is, I'm not so enthusiastic to get into this in great detail because it's kind of hand wavy, but um, I'll talk about it a little bit. But basically, you've got a molecule that has more than one binding site for something. The affinity for the ligand in this state is lower because the binding site, part of the binding site has this kind of floppy bit. 
the floppy bit is sometimes in the right orientation to bind the ligand, sometimes it's not. And so basically this molecule does not have super high affinity for the ligand. Eventually the ligand binds and it orders the binding site on one side. That changes the conformation which is then passed to the other side and that basically restricts the floppiness of the other side such that you get this more stable, this more, so, sorry, A, B. The ligand binds here, that is passed on to this one which has become slightly less floppy. You can see here that this is super floppy. This is slightly less floppy because of the conformational change that was passed to it from the other side. And as a result, you now have higher affinity for the second ligand. Okay. That's theoretical framework for how they think cooperativity works. We can, in general, think about that for hemoglobin. But what I want you to bear in mind is, uh, I think more pragmatic is to think about how when the oxygen binds the hemoglobin, it changes the conformation, and now subsequent oxygens are going to bind uh, more easily. There's a pH dependence for hemoglobin binding oxygen. Okay, uh, it binds. Uh, so the the binding. So hemoglobin also binds protons and carbon dioxide, um, and the binding of protons is inversely related to the ability to bind oxygen. That is, at low pH, where there's more protons, it doesn't bind as well. So this is the binding of oxygen to hemoglobin at low pH with high pro, higher protons. This is the binding of oxygen at high pH, more basic, and you can see that it binds better. Why is that? Well, there's a salt bridge here. There's a histidine here. Okay, We've talked about how the pKa for histidine is in and around neutrality. So at different pHs, there's going to be different differential occupancy of... Uh, a nitrogen here taking on a proton. When you protonate this histidine, okay, that forms a bond, a salt bridge, to uh, an aspartic acid on an adjacent residue. So basically this is an alpha subunit, this is a beta subunit. You've got this um, histidine here that's binding to this aspartic acid, but that's only going to happen when there's a hydrogen on it, when there's a hydrogen on that histidine. And that stabilizes the T state. That makes it harder to go into the R state, right? So this bond between the subunits kind of helps lock the subunits into that T orientation. So at higher pH, where this hydrogen comes off, well then this bond that's kind of holding hemoglobin into the T state is going to be lost, and it's going to be easier to go into the R state. And that manifests itself with these different oxygen binding curves. Remember, the R state is better for binding oxygen, it's going to be harder at low pH where this histidine gets more protonated and then you're getting that interaction that's not happening in high pH. The last thing I'll cover before we break is this idea of BPG, bisphosphoglycerate. This is a molecule that your body makes to be able to kind of control how well you are binding oxygen. So basically, this has been noticed that people that live at high altitudes have different so your need to be able to carry oxygen is going to be different whether you're at sea level or at you know, the top of Mount Everest, right? And so it'd be nice if your body could kind of help respond to that in some way. It does that by making this molecule called BPG. It is a molecule that uh, when it binds to hemoglobin, it makes it a harder to go into the R state. And the reason that it does that, so this is basically your, your partial pressures. You can see that here, uh, this is BPG. Uh, in the absence, this is the binding of oxygen in zero PPG. 
BPG, and then you're adding BPG at different amounts, five millimolar, eight millimolar, and the ability to bind oxygen drops drastically. So you're basically, your body can kind of control, by making this molecule, how avidly your, how, how badly hemoglobin wants to bind oxygen. The way it does that, so this is the T state on the left, and this is the R state on the right. You can see that there's this nice little cavity. It's full of basic amino acids. There's this cavity in the middle of the protein that's very big in the T state, and it basically disappears in the R state. Okay? BPG is very negatively charged. It loves to bind places that are positively charged. And you've got this nice cavity that's big and open and positively charged in the T state. So if you've got lots of BPG, it finds a very happy home in there, binds in there, and holds hemoglobin in the T state. It's kind of locked. It's kind of like a doorstop. It's stuck in the T state now. So now, by not being able to go into the R state, it's that much harder for hemoglobin to bind oxygen well. Right? We talked about how it's that transition to the R state that makes hemoglobin very good at binding oxygen. So you can imagine that by controlling the amount of BPG in your bloodstream, your body can basically game or twist or play with the ability of your blood to bind oxygen. All right, so I got a, one more slide. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it next class. Fine. Uh, so I'll see you next week. And again, office hours are uh, in about half an hour. <laughs>